Let's look at our Bibles tonight. John chapter 6. Look at verse 66. The Bible says, From that time, many of... Let's stand together. Can we do that? Let's stand together. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. There was a very large group that was following Jesus in John 6 at the beginning of the chapter. By the end of the chapter, there is a very small group following Jesus. Why is it that uh, the group was large at the beginning and small at the end? Because the motives of many was wrong. The motive of many was wrong. And so that brings us to this thought, why are you following Jesus? Lord, help us this evening with a sermon. Uh, open our eyes to the truth. May we be honest with ourselves over our motives. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we looked at uh, this uh, chapter some time ago and looked directly at the story uh, of uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the crowd that was skeptical. But in my study, I found more material than we had time to cover, and so I've developed this yet into another sermon out of this passage. We know that in the beginning of John 6, the multitudes show up and take away the vacation of Jesus and His disciples. And so Jesus teaches the crowds and then He feeds the 5,000. And as you may remember, He sends the crowds away, He puts His disciples in a boat, and then He heads up into a mountain to spend the night in prayer and to fellowship with His Father. Well, he comes down in the middle of the night and he walks on the water and he calms the storm. Here Peter walks on the water with him and then he calms the storm. At this point in John 6, Jesus has reached the very pinnacle of his popularity. There is no point in the ministry of Jesus where he was more popular than he is right now. Seemingly, everyone loved him and wanted to see him. Now, how could Christ go from being the most popular human alive to death and crucifixion just a short time later? What happened to the crowds? Well, the answer is simple. While many were following Jesus, they were following Him for the wrong reasons. In the text we read just a moment ago, we saw the large portion of His disciples, they turned and walked away. Why did they leave Him? Well, as we'll see in a few moments, they left Him because they were following Him for selfish reasons. For what they could get out of Jesus. Many people want part of church. They want to be labeled as a disciple of Christ. But they're not really willing to deny themselves to take up their cross and follow Him. Some come to church and follow because of status. Status. There is a status of being a churchgoer. And some people come because they want the status. Others follow because of tradition or family heritage. Maybe you're like me and you were raised in church 
from the time that you were a little boy and then you had kids of your own and now you want to raise them in church because you were raised in church and that's just what we do. My grandma went to church, my great-grandma went to church, my great-great-grandma went to church, so I'm going to go to church and I'm going to encourage my children to do the same. Uh, but that's a shallow reason to attend. Some follow or go to church because of the possibility of financial blessing. Uh, maybe you, you tried quitting church one time and all of a sudden you hit financial rough spot. and You thought, oh boy, I need to get back in church so the Lord will bless me financially and I can get back into the good graces of God and have the financial blessings other people follow because they feel obligated. There is a segment of Christian churches that will beat you over the head with the Bible and uh, make you believe that God's not going to love you as much if you stop going to church. And so they come because they feel guilted into coming. They're a disciple of Christ on some level because they're doing it simply out of duty. They're doing it out of obligation. And some attend church because it makes them feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. I love going to church, and I love singing, and boy, when I sing, I put my hands up in the air, and, I, and I'm not making fun of people who do this. I raise my hands oftentimes when I'm singing, but I put my hands up in the air, and I praise the Lord, and oh, it just makes me feel so good inside. And that's why they come to church, because it gives them a good, warm and fuzzy feeling. i tell you, I get a warm and fuzzy feeling when I come to church uh, and I praise and worship the Lord with you all. There's nothing wrong with that, but that cannot be the driving reason as to why you attend. If any of these are your principal reasons for following Christ and attending His church, then you're no different than these disciples that followed Him and then departed offended. I want us to consider yet one more uh, truth out of John chapter 6 as we look at just a handful of observations that revolve around this question of why are you following Jesus. So let's jump in, move quickly through these eight. I'm going to try to get you out of here in the next 25 minutes. Number one, notice the crowd's misdirection. The crowd's misdirection. April, could you run my water bottle up here to me? It's right here on the front row. I would appreciate that. The crowd's misdirection. Look at John 6 and look at verse number 22. Thank you. And let's read down through verse number 25. The Bible says, The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one wherein his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit, there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? So the crowds saw Jesus send the disciples away, and they saw him go up into the mountains that evening. And so they stood or camped out at the base of the mountain 
waiting for Jesus to come back down. And uh, But what happened was in the middle of the night, while they were all sleeping and it was raining outside, Jesus came down the mountain, He walked across the sea, and uh, He met up with His disciples, and then on in to Capernaum they went. They woke up the next morning, and they're, they're standing there waiting for Jesus to come out of the mountain. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And maybe they formed a search party to go up into the mountain and look. And then they look, and they see there's no boat that He could have taken. So where did He go? And so they decided to get in their own boats and sail across the ocean there, and they find Jesus on the other side. So uh, they question Jesus on how He had been able to elude them. He then eludes their question by going at their impure desire to seek Him and find Him. So they're not looking for Jesus for the right reasons, and He's going to call them on it right here. Verse 25, they say, How did you get over here? Whence comest thou hither? Number two, we see the crowd's motives. The crowd's motives. We're going to look at verse number 26. The Bible says, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. If they would have listened to this part of the verse, the rest of the chapter would have made a, the rest of his uh, 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 metaphor would have made, made a lot more sense. Look here. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. You remember when he told the woman at the well, he told her, if you drink of this water, you're going to thirst again, but if you drink of the water that I will give you, ye shall never thirst again. So Christ had performed a miracle that was very special. 5,000 plus people, he fed them with five uh, barley loaves and two small fishes. Wow! They thought if we hang around this guy, then he's going to feed us for the rest of our lives. Letter A, notice, they desired to please the flesh. They desired to please the flesh. Look at verse number 34. Then said they unto him, Lord evermore, Give us this bread. Uh, uh, you may remember in John 4, again, the example of the woman at the well. Uh, here he is trying to tell the crowd that he, he is the living bread. They can partake of the eternal bread by believing on Him. He's trying to talk to them about spiritual things through a metaphor, and all they have their eyes on is, my belly is hungry, the food you gave me has wore off, please produce more food and feed me, feed me. Uh, their minds are totally on the fleshly. Many people follow Jesus for what it does for their flesh, and they want to choose a church that will appease the flesh and satisfy the flesh. We have some churches around here that do that. They look to fit in with the culture at large and they look to acquiesce to the culture and they want people to be able to give in to the baser instincts of their flesh and yet, um, uh, and yet, uh, uh, still make, uh, feel as though they are religious. I wasn't at the festival yesterday. I was traveling back in town, uh, from uh, our trip. Uh, I was talking to a couple of the men who were there, and Pastor Andrew as well, and most of the churches represented there yesterday were either giving out rainbow flags or had them hanging up at their display. 
White Oak Baptist Church did not have a rainbow flag uh, displayed at our church. We stand very clear on this topic. And if that makes us the only church in Stratford or the only church in uh, the greater Bridgeport area or the only church in Connecticut or the only church in America or the only church in the world, I don't care. If all the other churches around the world go this direction, God's Word says that marriage belongs between one man and one woman for life. And we're going to preach that here. We're going to preach that here. We're going to preach it all day long. And you know what? If that means that we have small crowds at our church, then we'll have small crowds. We're going to stand where the Bible stands. We're not going to give in to the flesh. Years ago, uh, actually I was just a teenage boy living in Alabama, and I checked the mailbox, and um, there was a flyer in the mailbox for my family that was for a seeker-sensitive church startup. It, it read, it was a survey, and it read, it read this, it said, survey, tell us what you want in a church. So some of the boxes to be checked off included music concerts, low-pressure giving, sermons that comfort and do not confront, a community feeling, shortened services, and no altar calls. Many, many people attend churches like that. In fact, the biggest churches, evangelical churches in America, have many of those things plugged in. Why? They're looking to appease the flesh. They're looking to appease the flesh. Um, uh, I want to surround myself, they say, with people that look, smell, and act just like I do. If your reason for attending church is so that your flesh can be satisfied, then you are following Jesus for the wrong reasons. Those of you that grew up in a Baptist church similar to this one, you can also fall in the trap of, well, I only go to church because it makes me feel good. This is what I know. And let's not land in the trap of being comfortable with Christ, being comfortable with what we know. Let's continue to push forward and grow and go against the flesh. And listen, I don't ever want our church to be a place that soothes, calls out, pleases the, the flesh in a sinful way. No, we need to come to church and have our sinful flesh challenged and pushed against and get our proverbial toes stepped on. They desired to please the flesh. Letter B, they desired political freedom. They desired political freedom. During this time, there was great political oppression by the Romans. They sought their Messiah uh, to come and give their uh, nation, give them national sovereignty again. And I'll just quickly give you an example of this. You remember in Matthew 16, where Jesus said to His disciples, the Son of Man must needs be crucified and, and, and buried and, and, and He'll raise again. And Peter rebuked Jesus. He said, this thing cannot be so. Uh, this cannot be. Uh, you will not die. You are going to help us overthrow and establish our, 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 our Jewish dominance again. And Jesus pulls Peter to the side and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. That's not why I came. These people wanted political freedom. Look at verse 14 and 15. Then though, John 6, then those men when they had seen the miracles that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Which prophet? Oh, the prophet that's going to give them Israeli dominance. 
When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And so this is uh, after he fed them and then goes up in the mountain. Now, I work really hard to stay out of politics while in the pulpit. However, I'm going to preach the Bible. And if the political world wants to wander into biblical territory, well, I'm going to stand on the Bible. I'm not, going to, I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not going to run from one. And we're going to stand where the Bible stands. And it is a, we believe abortion is a sin. We believe it is wrong. I have no problem stating that. If that's a political statement, let it be. Before it's a political statement, it's a biblical statement. And I have no problem saying that the LGBT movement is iniquity and wrong and, and horrible in the sight of God. Before that's a political agenda... That's a biblical agenda. We need to stand where the Bible stands. I'm not looking to get into politics, but I am looking to preach the truth. Now, let me say this about how you should vote. Because, Christians, the one area we should be involved in is voting, and we're getting ready to come up on the 2024 election. Hold your nose. Here it comes. What is the role of the Christian when it comes to politics? Number one, do not vote for a political party. Vote your moral conscience. Vote your vote with your biblical conscience in mind. And number two, read the back of the Bible and remember, Christ is one day going to win the political scene. It, look, we, we, if your politician does not win in 2024, you can rest assured one day King Jesus is going to be in charge. Amen? Number three, notice the crowd's method. The crowd's method. Look at verse number 28. Then, they, then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And you see here a little bit of a, of a verbal spar going on between Christ and the crowd. crowd. Rabbi, how did you elude us? Christ you only want to be near me for the wrong reasons. Crowd, tell us what we should do uh, that we uh, can do the works of God. The question sounds like a good one, but the premise of their question is all wrong. Deep in the heart of every human being, there is a desire to try and erase the guilt that sin has laid on us. You remember when Naaman in the Old Testament had the leprosy and he comes to Elijah and uh, Elijah says, uh, just go simply uh, wash in uh, the, the river, the Jordan River there, dip seven times and be made whole. And Naaman got all worked up and said, I've got rivers in my own land. I could dip myself in those. Why do I have to dip myself in this murky, ugly Jordan River? And uh, those who were around him, his counsel said, had he asked you to do a hard thing, would have you not done it? And Naaman went and dipped himself in that water and he was made whole. And you remember he came back and he tried to pay Elijah for the healing. There's always this desire to do, to do that we might work the works of God. Uh, Islam's answer is fast. They set aside the month of Ramadan for that pur purpose, Catholicism says, do penance, earn, indulgen earn indulgences, uh, be a part of Mass. And what should we do that we might work the works of God? Hinduism says, torture your body, perform prodigies of physical endurance. Uh, the rabbis and the Islam, or rather the Jewish world say, keep the laws according to the tradition of the elders. The crowd's method for pleasing God was to do 
works. They came to Christ with their works-based mentality and asked Him to articulate the particulars of how they could please God with their work-based salvation. But we see, number four, Christ's mandate. Christ's mandate was different than their method. Look with me at verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. Oh, I love this verse. That ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. Hey, you want to know what you can do to earn eternal life? Believe on Him whom He hath sent. There's the answer to someone who says, well, you got to do good things to get into heaven. They asked Jesus that question directly, and He said this, He said, You cannot save yourself. You cannot do good works. God must do good works. And by the way, those who believe that somehow you have to continue to be a good person and show fruit in your life to prove that you're saved, your works were not part of your salvation. Your works are not going to keep your salvation. It is the Lord who saves you, and it is the Lord who maintains that salvation. How does one get saved? It's very straightforward. Faith in the complete work of Christ. Plus nothing, minus nothing. How does one grow? Faith in the grace of God and His Word that changes our heart's desires. Faith in God both saves you and sanctifies you or grows you. Number five, notice the crowd's misunderstanding. The crowd's misunderstanding. To say the crowd was lost and confused is a grave understatement. They saw Jesus as nothing more than another one of Israel's prophets, they did not and would not accept Him as the suffering servant Messiah. Letter A, we see their comparison. Their comparison. Look with me at verse number 30. John chapter 6. They said therefore unto Him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What doest thou uh, uh, what dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, instead of seeing this Messiah as, or this rabbi as the Messiah, they saw him like they saw Moses. Their attitude was, prove to us that you really are someone great. You fed us miraculously once. Hey, that's nothing. Moses called down the bread from heaven for 40 years. Now, I just want you to stop and think about how entitled this is. You sat in a crowd and watched a man take five loaves of bread and two fishes and feed 15,000 people, 5,000 men plus the women and children, somewhere between five and 20,000 people probably. I mean, you'd think that would satisfy, but instead they, they stand there and they say to him, well, if you really are someone great, do it again. What? Do it again. John Phillips, commentator, I lean on a lot in my office. He was a Baptist, uh, independent Baptist. He said this, he's in heaven now. He said this, miracles breed a craving for more miracles. I'd write that down. Miracles crave a breeding, uh, crave a uh, breed a craving for more miracles. Have you noticed that miracle seekers always need a new miracle? They always need a new miracle. It's not just enough. They've got to do it, see it again and again and again. How selfish was this? 
Yeah, so what that you fed us uh, a fish and bread buffet with the boys' lunch? Do it again. And do it again. And do it again. Sounds like to me they're looking for uh, a welfare handout from Jesus because they didn't want to have to earn their own way uh, to feed themselves again. Letter B, we see their confusion. Their confusion. Look at verse number 32. Not only their comparison, but their confusion. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Christ is saying, you all indulged on the miracle yesterday, but missed the message of the miracle. He said, Moses did not give you the bread, give the bread to your forefathers, but rather my Father gave the bread to your forefathers. Furthermore, my Father has given to you me. Jesus said, I am the true bread from heaven. He said, this is not a physical bread, this is a spiritual bread. They could not get their eyes off the fleshly. They were following Jesus, but they were following Him for the fulfillment of the lust of the flesh. And that's what I want to drive at this evening is that if you attend church, and if you read your Bible, and if you pray, and if you go soul winning, and if you're involved in ministry, and if you teach a class, and if you serve simply for what you can get out of it, then my friend, at some point, you're going to fall off and you're going to quit following the Lord. Humanism says this, I am the most important person walking the, uh, walking the earth and I'm going to surround people around me and religious thought and philosophy around me that helps me be the best version of myself. Christianity says I am made to bring honor and glory to the Lord. I will revolve my life around the Lord for His glory and His honor and His praise. They wanted their flesh satisfied with food Jesus said, that's not what I, that's not the need I'm here to take care of. Number six, we see Christ's message. Christ's message. Now, this next part of the sermon, for those of you that are bothered by John six or have a hard time with John six, this part of the message is extremely important. And if you don't know John six well, you need to listen up because when we get to some heavier things in just a moment, you're going to really be glad you listen to this next part. Letter A, we see his simple metaphor, his simple metaphor. Look at verse 35. Jesus saith unto them, and I have this next phrase underlined in my Bible, I am the bread of life. Take note of that, right? We're going to come back to this in just a moment. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You cannot understand the rest of this chapter without verse 35. Verse 35 is the key to understanding everything else that Jesus said. The reason why they were so offended by the rest of the chapter is because they were not listening to verse number 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. As simple and natural as it is to come and eat bread, it is that simple to believe and receive. Look at verse 48 again. Jesus says in 48, I am the bread of life. In case they weren't listening the first time. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness 
and are dead. Hey, they ate physical food and yet died. Verse 50, This, me, is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. Now, for those of you that grammar class was a long time ago, let me just give you a very quick, simple grammar lesson. Don't shut me out, alright? A metaphor is a comparison that leaves out the words like or as. So a simile would be this. Life is like a box of chocolates. Alright? You never know what you're going to get. Alright. Um, life, life is like... No, was that wrong? Anyway. Um, life is like a box of chocolates. Notice the word like. It's a word of comparison. A metaphor would be this. Life is a battlefield. Alright? Life is not actually a battlefield, but there are parallels that can be drawn between a battlefield and life. Uh, it leaves out like or as. That's what makes it a metaphor. Alright? Christ is not actually a loaf of bread, but again, strong parallels can be drawn. Now, the metaphor is simple. Jesus says, if you come unto me and believe, then you will never hunger. He is not talking about physical hunger. He's talking about spiritual hunger. How many of you remember the day that you put your faith and trust in Christ and got saved and your spiritual hunger was satisfied once and for all? How many of you that way this evening? That spiritual hunger was taken care of. Jesus is not talking about eating His own flesh and drinking His blood as we'll look at in a minute. He's metaphorically saying, I am like bread. I am the bread of life. If you'll come and receive and believe, you'll never spiritually hunger again. His simple metaphor, notice letter B, his strong message. His strong message. Look at 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, but he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now this passage may sound strange, but remember this is a metaphor. Look back up with me at verses 49 and uh, rather look at verse 50. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and die not. That's not not die. That's not the verse I'm looking for. Hang on here. Just a moment. Verse 35. Look at verse 35 again. This is the key to understanding uh, the chapter. Jesus, and Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Look here. He that cometh to me, notice the coming, shall never hunger. Coming uh, is tied to uh, uh, coming to Christ is tied to the bread. He that believeth on me, belief is tied to the the blood or uh, uh, drinking his blood. So, how do you drink the blood of Christ by believing? How do you eat the body of Christ by coming? You come and believe, and that's how those two things 
are accomplished. Now, it might sound strange. You eat by coming to Christ. You believe by drinking in Christ. Now, with that in mind, look at verse 53, and let's read this again, and let's insert those thoughts as we go. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, or come unto the Son of Man, and drink his blood, believe ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, or comes, and drinketh my blood, or believes, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my uh, blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, or he that comes, and drinketh my blood, or he that believes, dwelleth in me, and I in him, as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, or he that comes, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now this was a strong message and it was not well received by the crowd. They were offended by his message. In fact, notice number seven, the disciples that were miffed. The disciples that were miffed. Look down at verse number 59. It says, these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? Look down at verse 66. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? They could not handle this message. Why could they not handle this message? Please listen to what I'm about to say. Jesus was saying to them, take your eyes off the fleshly, and what you can get out of the flesh by following me, and put your eyes on the eternal. They would not do that. So then he gave them a strong message with a metaphor. They did not hear the metaphor, and as a result, they turned and left. They turned and left. I have watched hundreds of people walk away from church in my 39 years of life. Hundreds of people that attended for a little while and fell off. Hundreds of people that came and were fired up for the Lord and they're gone. I've seen Sunday school teachers or life group leaders now. I have seen um, uh, bus captains and bus directors and nursery directors and nursery workers and people who sat on a pew for 20 or 30 years. I have seen assistant pastors. I have seen senior pastors who are no longer in church today. Why? Because they were following the Lord for fleshly reasons. And when when things got real and things got tough, their motives were exposed And they fell off. They fell off. Jesus said, you're not in this to get food for your flesh. You're in this to believe in Me. Lastly, number eight, the disciples that Christ maintained. This is the crowd we want to be a part of. Look at verse 67. Then said Jesus, son of the twelve, will ye also go away? Then said Peter, then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Oh, this is wonderful. 
Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe, oh, Peter got the metaphor. We believe and are sure that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. As you study the life of the disciples, one thing is abundantly clear at this point. They were doctrinally pretty confused. You keep reading on, they didn't have it all figured out. I'm sure they did not understand everything that Christ was teaching, but you know what they did? They stayed with Him. Why? Why? Because they followed Him for the right reasons. How about you, Christian? Are you following Christ so that He can bless your life? Or so that you can repay Him for His great sacrifice on your behalf? I heard a song some years ago that one of these college tour groups put out. I've only heard it one time by one group, and I don't even remember totally the song. But here's the concept. If all Jesus ever did was save me and never gave me one more blessing the rest of my life, He is still worthy of me living sacrificially for Him. If all I get out of Jesus is salvation and nothing else, and I live my whole life without His hand or without His presence or without His blessings, He is still worthy of my life. I don't come to church so that I can get some feeling. I don't come to church so that I can have friends. I don't come to church so that I can have this, that, or the other. I come to church because He has earned the right for me to live for Him. Why are you here today? Why will you get up tomorrow morning and read your Bible and pray? Why will you pass out gospel tracts? Wherever you go, why will you clean up your language and uh, limit what you watch on TV and uh, limit what you do with entertainment and, and act different in the world? Is it simply so that you can have the prosperity of God on your life? Is it so that you can fit into a social class? Or is it because Christ is worthy of your lifestyle? Some come to church for what church can do for them. What we need are those who come to church so that they can effectively serve the Lord and give back. Christian, why are you following like Jesus? Why are you following Jesus? Be like the twelve, not like the masses. All around this country today, there were tens of thousands of people who got up and got dressed and went to church. Most of them did not go to church for the right reason. This morning there were hundreds of people that got up and came to this church today. I'd venture to guess many of them did not come for the right reason. How about you? Why are you here? Are you following Jesus for what matters? I finish with this. One day, one day, Christian, it's going to be your turn at the judgment seat of Christ. Understand that this is not a judgment of your sin. This is a judgment of your righteous works or your good works, if you will. These works will be placed in a fire. 1 Corinthians 3. And at the end of that fire, you're going to either be handed ash or crowns that you'll lay back at the feet of Jesus. All of the works you did that you would label good will enter into this fire. What will turn them into either ash or crowns? The reason why you did them. You know, you can, ladies that are, ladies and Brother Jason at work master clubs, 
thank you for what you do. You are making an investment in the next generation. You know you can get to heaven and get a pile of ash for all that labor because you did it for the wrong reason? You that work the nursery, thank you. We couldn't have church if you didn't work the nursery. Those of you that sing, thank you for singing. Boy, you lift our hearts up in praise of the Lord. How about pastors? It's going to be a lot of ashes in heaven because our motives aren't right. We're only nice to people if they're nice back to us. We only give to people if they give back to us. We only serve Jesus as long as He continues to pour blessings down on us. May we follow Jesus because He is worthy. Because He is the Christ, as Peter said. The Son of the living God. Lord Jesus, tonight I pray that You'd help us. Help us to fully and thoroughly examine our hearts. This is a hard-working church. Many folks do a lot of good things in this church. But much like the church of Ephesus that did works, but had lost their first love, Lord, sometimes that can happen to even the best of us here. Oh Lord, may we check our hearts. May we not be in this for what we can get out of it, but what we can give to it. Lord, we give back to You because You paid the ultimate price for us on the cross. Thank You for that sacrifice. Thank You for our salvation. Thank You that we will not have to spend an eternity in hell. Thank You that You are preparing for us a place in heaven where we'll dwell one day. Lord God, would You help us this evening as we look at our own motives, Lord, to test those and work on those and be in this for the right reason. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand to our feet.